Hi, my name is Chita Roman. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine consultant in the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. I'm Catherine Bell. I'm a HEMS doctor and an adult emergency medicine consultant in the Ulster. And today we're going to talk about pediatric hypothermia. Great. I think this is an interesting topic for pediatric doctors in the UK because we don't see hypothermic patients that often. My thoughts immediately go through to the neonate who is being resuscitated in the delivery suite and the concerns regarding um, thermoregulation for those ones mm -hmm. as they, they lose heat rapidly. Or that horrible APLS um, scenario in which you get a cardiac arrest who's hypothermic and drowned. However, due to children's large surface area to volume ratio, their decreased subcutaneous fat and limited thermoregulation uh, capacity, they would be at higher risk uh, of significant hypothermia in certain circumstances. In ED, the patients that I could see coming in through uh, with, with hypothermia are, are generally the trauma patients, um, where there's been a delay in extrication or they've been outside for a long period of time or blood losses has been present and, and hypothermia can be quite significant. Burns patients with excessive cooling coming in, shivering uh, and shut down immersion victims or those septic children and neonates, and I'm sure that's the case in adults as well. Most of these require little more than forced air systems to rewarm. Um, are these similar patients to that, the ones that you see in yeah, practice? Um, I definitely do, I'd agree with all of that. Um, so what I would say is hypothermia is rare in the UK. Um, we don't see very much of it. The incidence is estimated to be about six to eight uh, patients per thousand patients. Most of these are probably mild hypothermia, mm -hmm. and we probably don't even think of them as hypothermia. We think of them as cold, and then we warm them up, and they're usually in the ED for something else. Um, moderate to severe hypothermia is much less common, and death from hypothermia in the UK is rare. Despite this, it is seen every year by ambulance crews in the UK. Um, in my head, it's useful to have a classification system. So um, I split primary th uh, hypothermia into primary hypothermia and secondary hypothermia. Okay. Um, primary hypothermia is seen in individuals who are otherwise fit and healthy, but they've been exposed to cold environmental circumstances that cause the core temperature to drop. Um, and uh, this can happen in uh, any climate, uh, in any season, even in Northern Ireland during the summer. Um, so I'm thinking cold and wet environments and people outside uh, doing recreational activities. Like is, the Duke of Ed. Yeah, this is where you're at the most risk. So Duke of Ed and uh, kids swimming who get picked up by mountain rescue or the Coast Guard. Um, secondary hypothermia um, is slightly different um, and it's a bit more complex. Um, so uh, it usually affects patients for... Um, who have uh, an iatrogenic reason such as trauma uh, in an urban setting uh, or patients in an urban setting who are uh, more vulnerable. So they have a vulnerability such as an underlying medical condition that puts them at risk, so sepsis, metabolic disease, uh, or they're vulnerable adults uh, or children due to um, alcoholism, illicit drug use, uh, mental illness, homelessness, rough sleeping or poverty where you just don't have heat in your home and you're unwell and mm -hmm. then you get hypothermic. Um, so it puts them at risk. Okay. We know that hypothermia can be primary or secondary, uh, which is important as we don't want to miss the underlying condition. However, for the management of hypothermia, it is more useful to measure temperature. Uh, the classification I use for uh, hypothermia 
uh, is that above 35, you're looking at cold stress. Yeah. And these are individuals who should be able to recover by themselves, given the circumstances, putting on something warm, taking off dry, uh, wet clothes, um, having something warm to drink, maybe moving a bit more. Yeah. This is me after going swimming. Absolutely. So mild hypothermia is 35 to 32 degrees uh, Celsius, and then moderate 32 to 28 degrees, severe 28 to 20, and then there's profound hypothermia, and that's below 20 degrees Celsius. These ranges can be found in much of the literature, um, but I was surprised to find that hypothermia is often missed. Yeah. Okay. Um, the literature emphasizes the need for temperature monitoring in any unwell patient or those with altered mental status. I suppose this is a bit foreign to me because I work in a pediatric unit and most children who come in through our door who are at all unwell will get a full set of OBS including a temperature. Isn't this the case in adults? No, we're much worse in adults at actually checking a temperature so sometimes you have to actually think about this in the patients who might be a secondary hypothermia. Okay, um, so checking the temperature is very important. The importance of gaining an accurate temperature is to confirm the diagnosis, assess the risk of complications, such as decision regarding level of treatment, uh, and in order, to be, uh, in order for this to be useful, an accurate temperature is needed. Yeah, so how do we measure temperature? So every place has a slightly different way of measuring temperature. We used to use Tempadopts, now we've moved on from those. Uh, we have, uh, for our standard children, we have uh, oral, um, for the older children who can, who can cooperate, oral temperature probes. Uh, for the younger ones, we use um, uh, auxiliary temperature probes. But these are only accurate to about 35 degrees. Yeah, so not useful if you actually have hypothermia. No. So below this, you need to have some form of core, re uh, core temperature monitoring. The gold standard is, uh, is esophageal. And I think you use that mostly in adults. The problem with these is you have to be ventilated. Yeah, this um, is true. Uh, and these can be affected by warmed air that you give uh, uh, during your warming uh, process. The other options are uh, for central, which is fine if you're in intensive care, um, and uh, bladder um, temperature probes or uh, rectal temperature probes. Rectal temperature probes have a problem in that they lag slightly behind esophageal temperature probes, as does uh, bladder. So it, as long as you're aware of the limitations uh, of uh, temperature monitoring, uh, as long as you stick with the one that you're familiar with and use it regularly. How do you use it in the community? I mean, surely there's limitations to what you can do with temperature yes. probes. So uh, for us, this is uh, much more difficult. So measuring temperature in the pre-hospital environment is difficult and it's hard to get an accurate measurement. Um, we do carry uh, thermometers, uh, but they're tympanic and it's hard to get an accurate uh, estimation. Um, there have been clinical scoring systems um, devised uh, to help with this, um, to help you stage and grade your hypothermia okay. uh, and to triage some of your decisions as to what you might do with your patient and where you might take them. Um, there's a couple of them around. Um, the two main ones are used worldwide by first responders. Um, the main one I'm going to talk about is the Swiss staging system for accidental hypothermia that's been developed by the uh, International Commission for Mountain Emergency Medicine um, and it's used by Mountain Rescue Services in the Alps and it uses a level of consciousness, uh, presence of shivering um, uh, or apparent death to help stage um, uh, degrees of hypothermia. Um, with each stage um, relating to either an estimated temperature range or a risk of cardiac arrest. 
Um, the, so with the Swiss system, it uh, relates to risk of cardiac arrest. Um, the other system that's used is the Wilderness uh, Medicine Society classification. It's similar and it uses clinical scores that relate to temperature ranges. The Swiss system is more interesting because it's recently been revised and simplified mm -hmm. um, and it uses Abpu, which we're familiar with Excellent. in kids. Um, Indeed, doctors. <laughs> Keep it simple. Keep it simple, exactly. So this is the main element they use for staging um, their uh, hypothermia. Uh, and it's because uh, retrospective analysis has shown that there's a relatively linear uh, relationship between uh, core temperature and level of consciousness in primary okay. hypothermia. Um, so uh, it then links to risk of cardiac arrest. Um, so the revised Swiss uh, criteria, if you are stage one, you are an alert patient and your risk of cardiac arrest is low. Okay. Really simple. Stage two, you're not alert, but you are responding to verbal stimulus and your risk of cardiac arrest is moderate. Um, stage three, you are unresponsive or only responding to pain. So this is getting progressively more severe hypothermia, but you still have vital signs. So you have a um, high risk of cardiac arrest. Stage four, your most unwell patients, they're uh, unresponsive um, and they're in hyper, uh, vital signs are absent or difficult to detect. So, they might, uh, so they're in hypothermic cardiac arrest. Okay. Um, ca and this helps you to stage a patient in the field without a temperature. Caveats to their use are they're been taken from observational studies, so the level of evidence is low. There is physiological variation between uh, different peoples, uh, pa patients of hypothermia varying substantially. Um, so it's useful to add to the clinical picture mm -hmm. um, and it can be skewed by drugs, alcohol, trauma, all the things that make secondary hypothermia more difficult. Um, it's a useful caveat, or it's a useful tool um, in uh, assessing stage of hypothermia clinically if you have to triage lots of patients, but you would always also want a temperature, um, which makes it more accurate to then decide, is this primary hypothermia, is there secondary hypothermia, is there an injury that I'm missing? So you still need good clinical judgment and a temperature if you can get it. Yeah, I do find it funny that the staging uh, rules out, um, it doesn't work with alcohol and drugs because in Northern Ireland, I'm thinking a lot of our it's exposed, of our there's going to be a lot of that, yeah, isn't there? trauma, drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Uh, so these staging classification systems rely on an understanding of the physiology mm. and changes uh, that you would expect as hypothermia progresses. So maybe I should take some time and just mention a bit yeah. of the, um, the homeostatic mechanisms that we, we look at. So normally our body maintains our temperature between 36.5 and 37.5 degrees Celsius. So 37.5 is a normal temperature. <laughs> um, uh, and balance, this is balanced by heat production and loss. And this is called thermoregulation. It's controlled by your hypothalamus. To preserve heat, peripheral vasoconstriction occurs, centralizing your warm blood um, and helping preserve core temperature. And uh, behavioral responses are triggered. Keeping warm, putting on extra jackets, getting out of the cold. Uh, so behavioral responses are, are part of it. Um, Increasing heat production results from initiating of shivering. Mm -hmm. So shivering is a good mechanism of keeping warm and can actually increase your basal heat production by two to five times the normal level. There's also an increase in the amount of thyroxine, increasing your basal rate and adrenaline, uh, helping with that vasoconstriction uh, and flight or fight type uh, mechanism. Nearly every system in the body is affected by the changes and, and all can eventually become overwhelmed due to fatigue and glycogen um, depletion. 
So all systems initially respond with an increased activity, so compensation, then they follow uh, by de decreasing um, and then eventually loss of activity yeah. and decompensation. So there's this um, uh, um, nice diagram here from Archem giving you the different changes in your, your physiological state depending on what temperature it is. And it's actually quite a good diagram. I'm just going to go through system rather than that. I'll leave that up for people to read. Um, so in the cardiovascular system, initial response is an increase in your heart rate and vasoconstriction with an increase in blood um, pressure, okay? And this results in cardiac output increasing as well. As hypothermia develops, the metabolic rate falls and oxygen demand decreases and bradycardia ensues along with an increase in your carbon dioxide uh, levels. The deeper the hypothermia, the more profound the bradycardia becomes and the more excitable the myocardium is uh, and can degenerate into arrhythmias such as atrial arrhythmia, ventricular fibrillation, and then eventually asystole and death. Early signs can be seen on ECG around uh, 32 degrees with J waves or Osborne uh, waves, and these are upward deflections on the terminal S wave. And they're normally seen initially in, in leads 2 and V6, and they will follow a standard progression as the temperature uh, gets colder. The respiratory system initially responds with an increase in respiratory rate resulting in a respiratory alkalosis and that's then followed as the metabolic rate drops and the de tissue demand drops for, the, for oxygen, respiratory acidosis ensues as ventilation reduces um, and carbon dioxide is retained. Um, as, we've uh, as we're going to mention, uh, pulmonary edema is a risk due to um, uh, third spacing of fluids um, and this may be an indication to consider early, early intubation. The oxygen dissociation curve shifts to the left, so even though you might have oxygen within your blood, it's harder for the cells to use. Um, further to this, enzyme dysfunction starts, and as a result, your coagulopathy, you get a coagulopathy as your coagulation cascade um, isn't functioning properly. This won't necessarily be reflected on your, your coagulation when you send it. Uh, thrombocytopenia uh, develops and hypercoagulability uh, develops and you may get a picture that is similar to DIC. Similarly, neurotransmitters slow down and these are the ones that we actually classically see and we talk about. Yeah. Um, these are the CNS effects. You see the, the patient who's coming in hypothermic uh, with impaired judgment, memory uh, is impaired and progression to slurred speech, ataxia, and decreased levels of consciousness. Yeah, so I'm a simple A&E doctor. I, that's a really good explanation of physiology, Tudor. Um, I make this really simple, and I uh, use the umbles. So uh, your CNS effects, your patient will stumble because their coordination's gone, they will mumble because they're slurring their speech, and they will thumble because they have no coordination. So in the field, I'm looking for the, thumble, uh, the mumble, umbles of my patients. Okay. That's a very good way of describing them. One of the things I found fascinating is these um, paradoxical undressing. As the temperature gets uh, extremely cold and uh, you let lose the vasoconstriction uh, that uh, is helping preserve your central heat, you get this flow of hot, warmer blood into the peripheries and people feel like they are warm and they start taking off their clothes. But then following this, there's a burrowing effect. Have you ever seen this? Um, no, I've never seen this. I've read about this in books and it's um, slightly disturbing. So you get this uh, 
uh, terminal burrowing where you get paradoxical undressing and then the patient uh, just before they become unconscious and die um, can uh, seek shelter. So you'll often find these patients unclothed inside a house under a bed or in a wardrobe. Um, and then you start to worry about clinical picture and has something else happened to them. Yeah. So it can be confusing. So I've never seen it, but something I've read about. Well, that's uh, particularly odd. Um, and I'm going to move on from it. <laughs> Uh, the kidneys initially respond to increased blood pressure and central blood volume with increased activity leading to diuresis. And a lot of people with just mild hypothermia may experience that. Just out watching kids play um, football or something like that, you might end up feeling like you need to go to the toilet a lot. And this, this, can, this can lead to progressive renal failure and shutdown um, uh, in more severe hypothermia. So we've had a look at the classification staging of hypothermia and the physiological response to hypothermia. But what about um, a case? Yeah. You're interested? I'm interested. Okay, so a 15-year-old found collapse in a park in winter. What is the management in the pre-hospital setting? Okay, so 15-year-old collapsed in a hospital, hands call. So uh, I'm going to start with the basics. Um, uh, so I'm going to do a, a B, C, D, E, mm -hmm. F, D, G. Yeah. Don't ever forget Always glucose. like it, don't ever forget glucose. Uh, just like your standard APLS. Um, I'm going to be cognizant that this is cold and I want to measure my patient's temperature. Um, same principles for everything apply. I'm going to support my airway, I'm going to support my breathing, I'm going to support my uh, circulation. I'm going to gather more information. So what has happened to this patient? Are there primary hypothermia? Are there secondary hypothermia? Is there something else going on with drugs and alcohol? And then the key principles of this are preventing further heat loss and trying to initiate rewarming. And uh, my levels of this um, will um, change depending on the patient's clinical state. Um, with uh, the more degree, more severe, severe hypothermia they have, uh, the more work I have to do to keep them safe and try and rewarm them and more actively, aggressively resuscitate them uh, in that way. Um, I also need to look out for my uh, complicating factors. So is there trauma? It, has this patient had an intracranial hemorrhage? Is there something else going on? Okay. okay. Um, so uh, what does this look like in real life? So my patient might be cold stressed and not need very much doing other than removing them from the heat and warming them up and giving them some warm drinks and some extra clothing. Uh, okay. uh, so rescue shelters are useful because you can get the patients out of the wind and uh, put them into uh, a vehicle, put them into an ambulance, uh, get them out of uh, harm's way. Um, then I'm thinking about a actual hypothermic patient with mild hypothermia. Um, and the principles we apply here, we're just going to add to them as the patient gets um, more unwell. So we're going to just do more things. Um, so get them out of uh, the cold environment, add heat, add insulation, insulate their uh, trunk. Um, so um, try and uh, get them out of their warm clothing, or sorry, out of their wet clothing. Mm -hmm. But this can be difficult. So you've got a difficult choice to do because you want to do this in a sheltered environment because you want to make their temperature drop further and make them worse. And it might not be feasible depending on where you are. If it's not feasible, you can use a burrito. Okay, so you can use a vapor wrap. Um, and uh, we like to try to minimise the exposure of the patient to the environment and then properly package them. So you're going to have the patient, um, if you can't cut them out of their wet clothes safely, then you keep them in your wet, their wet clothes. You wrap them in a plastic insulating layer, so like a Medi-Wrap. Uh, you put a 
a heat pack on their chest to keep them warm. You then add layers of insulations or uh, blankets um, and then you wrap them in a uh, windproof, waterproof uh, outer layer to keep them out of the environment and you get them off the ground because that's uh, bad because uh, uh, it's very cold. Um, if the patient is um, moderately to severely hypothermic and becoming unconscious and you have then you have more things to do um, and you have more risks involved as mm -hmm. well um, so then you're going to do all of the same principles um, but you want to keep them horizontal handle them gently um, and this is to avoid uh, after drop and rescue collapse insulate them from the ground carefully extract them uh, and uh, take them to shelter uh, still actively rewarm their trunk. Um, you don't want to actively warm their head because these oh, yeah. are the patients that have potential to deteriorate on you and rapidly become uh, your cardiac arrest patient. So if I love uh, a warm hat. <laughs> warm hat is very cosy, but if you are at risk of cardiac arrest, you want to keep your brain cold and your trunk warm um, so that you have neuroprotection of your head. Okay. Okay, so we'll give them some warm IV fluids and we'll talk about how we do that um, and then we have to just be careful in case they deteriorate and go into the VF that you were talking about because these patients are in the danger zone um, of that 32 to 28 to lower uh, and a risk of uh, VF arrest uh, contributed to by hypoxia, um, hypocarbiacidosis movement. Um, so there's this phenomenon in hypothermia called after drop and uh, after drop is where your core temperature continues to fall even after you remove the patient from the cold environment um, uh, or when you initiate rewarming and um, so your patient can actively get worse and the exact mechanism is not understood but it's thought to be because of cold blood from the peripheries returning to the core and then further dropping your uh, blood pressure or sorry your temperature um, so uh, we want to try and manage after drop and not make our patient worse. Um, so we don't want our patient standing up and walking around. Um, we want to keep them horizontal. We want to uh, limit the movement of their limbs and we want to handle them gently. And that after drop can drop your temperature by five or six degrees uh, and uh, get you into harm's way in that danger zone. Um, so then we want to think about um, what we're going to do with this patient and uh, how we're going to uh, rewarm them. Um, so the options I have um, in the field are heat pads um, okay. to heat the trunk. Um, similar chemical blankets. Chemical blankets, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, so these heat, uh, heat up, um, and, but they can take about 40 minutes, 20 minutes to 40 minutes to heat. Um, they rewarm you slowly. Um, they probably just stop my patients from getting colder rather okay. than actively yeah. rewarm re them. Yeah. Um, but they do increase uh, patient comfort and decrease their energy uh, use. So you can apply them to the chest and the axilla. That's where you're going to get uh, most uh, heat increase. Um, they're of limited use if your patient's really severely unwell and you're having to do uh, CPR. You have to be careful that they don't burn the skin of an unconscious patient. Okay. Um, I've got warmed fluids-ish. If you call them warm, that's fine. <laughs> so what I don't want to do is give cold fluid because yeah. that's going to drop my patient's uh, temperature further. Um, so if I'm giving IV fluids, I want to give them uh, warmed. Uh, so ambulances carry fluid warmers and that you might, if you're lucky, have one or two bags of saline uh, that are in the fluid warmer uh, warmed to about uh, 40 degrees. Um, 
we, once you take those out, they'll start to cool. So you want to give your fluid as a bolus rather than as an infusion. Um, and uh, we carry a blood warmer. So if we can warm blood, we can warm fluids. So you want to give your fluids through the warmer. Um, my warrior blood warmer can warm fluids up to about 38 degrees. So you're not going to probably rewarm the patient, but you are going to stop them from getting uh, colder. Um, and uh, taking into account after drop and uh, cold diuresis um, and all of these things, um, I think of hypothermia as a um, big C problem as yeah. well as big D problem um, because these patients are often hypovolemic um, and they can become, they, they are profoundly hypotensive when they're really severely unwell and they become even more hypotensive when you start to rewarm them as their circulation opens up. So they'll often need a fluid bolus uh, to uh, improve their uh, intravascular volume and to treat hypotension and shock. Um, and uh, I'd choose to give uh, normal saline. Don't ever forget your glucose, as we always Absolutely. say. So check it, and if it's low, give it and correct it. Um, warm transfer cabins. Um, so uh, this is probably my best way of stopping my patient from getting colder. Um, put them into a vehicle and turn the heat up and uh, try and get the heat um, to uh, 28 degrees. And if you think about that, um, that's we choose 28 degrees because that's when the patient will stop losing more heat, um, particularly if they're uh, undressed. That's really that should be uncomfortable for us. So if you think about your normal house, um, sitting at about 18 degrees. Yeah. Exactly. So I should be uncomfortable working in a cabin that is uh, 28 degrees. Okay. Um, severe trauma, so some of these patients do have drugs, alcohol and trauma. Um, we want, it makes things more difficult when these patients have a poor prognosis because of that um, lethal triad of coagulopathy, acidosis and hypothermia and trauma, uh, which we know is ex associated with an extremely high uh, mortality. Um, so we have to treat the trauma, uh, we, uh, but we want to um, resuscitate these patients early, manage their hypothermia uh, as aggressively as we can, try and manage their thermal care so that they don't get worse. But you still have to stabilise the C-spine injury, you still have to reduce the fracture, you still have to treat the wound. And then in the pre-hospital environment, I'm thinking about how unwell is my patient? Which hospital are they suitable for? Where do I want to take them? Mm -hmm. And do I have the possibility of extracorporeal um, life support, ECMO or bypass for my very severely, profoundly hypothermic patient? So which hospital am I going to go to? And if I'm coming to you, then it's TAG, Tudor, you're it. Oh, well, thanks for that. Um... So much of the management of the hypothermic patient has already been discussed, okay? An initial assessment starts off with your ABCDEFG. So you bring someone in, we're going to reassess them. Uh, and we have to consider their co coexisting injuries or comorbidities uh, as well as the rewarming. So when we think of the airway, um, any gas that you're going to give a hypothermic patient, you want to have it warm. You're going to give 100% warmed oxygen. And we're going to come to how we're going to deliver that in a second. Um, if the child is hyperventilating uh, and is needing bagged, uh, then you're going to consider intubating. Intubation can be uh, beneficial from the point of view of trying to rewarm the patient, um, trying to reduce the demand um, that the, cardio the, the taxed cardiovascular system uh, is also having uh, on the child, um, and then also protecting that airway and, uh, and helping you if, if cardiac arrest does, does event. So intubation is 
it's a, it's a risky situation, okay? You're doing moderate to severe hypothermia or profound hypothermia. You have a hyper-excitable heart. Uh, even movement or position can trigger this person to go into cardiac arrest, and there's a theoretical risk that intubation may do the same thing. Um, either way, you want to do this in a, in a controlled environment. You want to do it with the most experienced operator uh, available. Um, you're going to think about your circulation in this. Uh, you have a hypo, um, hypovolemic shutdown patient and the blood is, and, and, a, and a bradycardic patient. So any drugs that you're going to give are going to take a long time to circulate around uh, the patient and the patient's already cardiovascularly unstable. So you want to reduce the drug doses that you're going to, to give. If you're giving ketamine, you're probably going to start off with 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Once you've done that, you've given an extra length of time for those drugs to work. Mm -hmm. You're going to intubate um, with the most skilled operator, um, and you're going to monitor your um, end tidal CO2. You're going to aim for normocarbia, and initially, uh, when you first start ventilating, you may want to ventilate at half the normal um, uh, rate for a normal thermic patient. So hypothermia presents uh, as a cardiovascular problem, as you said. Uh, these children are profoundly hypovolemic uh, due to the renal losses and also third spacing. So aggressive fluid management is needed, and these fluids should be warmed. Um, uh, don't ever give any of these hypothermic patients cold uh, fluids or blood. If it's blood that's been lost, replace it with blood. If it's fluids, normal saline. I would stay away from anything uh, that has lactate in it because your liver, when it's hypothermic, can't metabolize lactate. So in our department, we're gonna use normal saline. Okay. IV access can be quite difficult to get in these patients. Yeah, real challenge. Peripherally shut down, it's hard enough at best of times. Um, so you're probably gonna think of IO. If you're thinking central, I'd go femoral. And the reason for this is that there's a theoretical risk of putting a neck vein, uh, neckline in, stimulating that heart and causing cardiac arrest when it's not there. As well, if you're thinking that this child may end up needing to go on to some form of extracorporeal life support um, or bypass, then you're thinking those veins probably going to need uh, to be used for that. Yeah. Okay, so stay away from the neck veins, um, IO or femoral uh, vessels. Um, the response to fluid boluses can be muted. All right? It might be very hard to know how much to give. Um, what you do need to know is that as hypothermia is treated, uh, recurrent boluses are probably going to be needed. Central access is probably important to try and monitor that uh, because you're not going to get your normal response. Um, uh, the patient's going to be hypotensive and they're going to be bradycardic. And they're going to continue to, to do that. Yeah, and the hypertension may not respond to the fluid bolus, but only to rewarming. rewarming. Okay. Um, urinary catheters can be helpful. They can be helpful for rewarming, but they can also be helpful for monitoring renal function and output. Hypertension and bradycardia are common findings, as we've just discussed, and the temptation is to try and correct them. Yeah. Okay. It's hard to watch. Exactly. Uh, and you're wanting to get an adrenaline infusion up there, unresponsive to your fluid boluses, uh, but that's a trap, okay? If you try and treat a severely hypothermic patient with adrenaline, it's gonna sit in the tissues, and then when you rewarm them, they're gonna get this rush of adrenaline, all right? So just like an uh, APLS guide for hypothermic cardiac arrest, you're gonna stay away from inotropes initially for hypothermic, um, sorry, bradycardia and hypothermia, 
okay, and you're going to warm them. And there's good evidence to show that as rewarming occurs, the heart will respond. And even so, so much so that in some arrhythmias, the heart will convert back into a normal rhythm with just rewarming. Uh, and you're going to try and avoid any inotrope support until you're at least over 32. Can be really difficult in these patients, Tudor, uh, when they're periarrest to distinguish between the patient that is really profoundly hypothermic and the patient that is about to ha that is actually in cardiac arrest. Yeah, very difficult. So, what kind of things might we be able to utilize? So, what you don't want to do is uh, turn a patient that is in a low flow, profoundly unwell state yeah. into a patient that's in cardiac arrest, um, but you also don't want to not treat the patient that's in cardiac arrest and you want to appropriately start CPR when you need to, um, but this can be really challenging. Um, uh, so. We would say you should look for uh, signs of life, uh, so look, listen, feel for a pulse for much longer, for mm -hmm. uh, up to a minute. A minute, yeah, uh, rather um, than your 10 seconds. Rather than your 10 seconds. And one thing is probably not going to be much use. You're probably going to want to combine a couple of factors here. So there's a couple of tricks that you can uh, use okay. and that are useful for you. Um, so put your monitor on and have a look at the rhythm and turn the altitude all the way up uh, on your leads uh, so that um, you uh, can properly assess your ECG and distinguish between VF and asystole. Okay. If you've got PEA, uh, so if you've got VF, that's easy. That's yep, cardiac arrest start, yeah. and you start CPR. If you've got PEA, uh, is that PEA or is that a perfusing rhythm? Um, so there, then you want to use a couple of other adjuncts. So um, sometimes it can even be really hard to tell what's actually on the monitor mm -hmm. um, so uh, using uh, your end tidal CO2 is useful so if you've got end tidal CO2 coming back regularly in a good trace you know you don't have cardiac arrest um, and the other trick that you have up your sleeve is ultrasound um, okay. so you can put an ultrasound probe on and look for vascular um, pulsatility or you can put the ultrasound probe and do an echo uh, and look to see do you have um, VF, do you have cardiac standstill or do you have cardiac activity? And that can help you distinguish between that patient that's peri-arrest and that patient that's arrested and needs CPR. But the one thing I would say is if in doubt, start. If in doubt, start CPR, yeah. Um, other diagnostic uh, considerations in the ED is your bloods. You're going to send off your FBP, uni, clotting screen, arterial blood gas, CK and blood alcohol and tox screen, depending on the scenario. Um, one of the important things to mention here is that hypothermia affects your gas result. Yeah. And there's complicated formulas that you can use to correct for hypothermia. But the base uh, advice is that you just use um, the warmed up gas result that uh, you get from a, a standard gas machine without any calculations and target your no management maths. of earth. That is no good. Maths. Okay. Um, you get a variety of abnormalities and we've talked about some of those. Hypoglycemia if it's there. Treat it. it, okay, and the, and most most people will have a degree of hypoglycemia in severe situations. If there's obvious electrical disturbance, you should also treat that, with some exceptions, obviously. So hypokalemia is very common, mm -hmm. okay, um, and the advice is that you should treat it with caution, only if severe. Yeah, I'm not sure what severe means or what the level is. It's hard to find. But if you're yeah, exactly. In so if, if you're worried about it, you're going to treat it, but you're going to have to have the realization that as hypothermia is treated, uh, your potassium is going to rise, okay? 
So hyperkalemia can also present initially, and if it's around 10 to 12, it's a poor prognostic indicator yeah. and often indicates uh, apoptosis of the cells yeah. and cell death. So um, asphyxia and yeah. Absolutely. So that's one of our poor prognostic indicators and can actually indicate uh, a contraindication to continuing rewarming. Um, elevated creatinine may uh, be present but won't necessarily reflect the true renal function. Uh, as I've mentioned already, coagulopathy may be present and it might not be seen on the actual blood gas. Um, and then loss of intravascular fluid causes a raise in your hematocrit. And what I like about this is it gives me a figure to work out, okay? So you've got a 2% um, rise in your hematocrit for every one degree um, drop in your temperature. So you can calculate what your hematocrit could possibly be. So okay. that helps you distinguish if your patient's actually bleeding or not. Is exactly. So if it's not where here? you think it should be, yeah, then or it's more than you think. your uh, am I worried uh, yeah. factor. Is there bl blood loss going on here? So thrombocytopenia may uh, occur uh, due to marrow suppression and uh, hepatosplenic sequestration as well. You're going to consider imaging depending on the, the, the trauma or the uh, issue that you are dealing with, and then you're going to get onto rewarming. And I'm trying to get onto this because this is where the focus is. But initially, in my department, I'm going to think, how am I going to prevent heat loss? I'm going to switch off the aircon if I can. In my department, I can't. It's cold in our recess room, but you're going to try and minimize that as much as possible. You're going to shut the doors, you're going to remove wet clothes, dry them, place them on, uh, I've, I've got to place them in the hat, you said don't. So I think I agree, you know, in the severe hypothermias, you don't put a hat on. In the ones that are uh, sort of mild to moderate, you, you can put a hat exactly. on. And that helps to, to uh, retain a lot of heat. Yeah. Uh, you're going to start passive rewarming, and that's your radiant heaters and chemical blankets. Um, and you can use forced air systems as well. Depending on the degree of hypothermia, then you're going to consider non-invasive active rewarming. And the active rewarming can be, pass, uh, can be invasive or non-invasive. Yeah. Initially, we're going to want to go for non-invasive. Yeah. All right, we're going to use our standard um, prevention of, of heat loss, and then we're going to go for non-invasive active rewarming. And that's your bear hugger. Uh, you're going to put something on that's going to start air blowing over, and these are very effective. And I was surprised to hear that bear huggers can increase your temperature as much as two degrees for every hour. Yeah, pretty all right? impressive. Which is pretty much where you want to be. You want yeah. to be increasing your temperature slowly from one to two degrees Celsius every hour for those who aren't in extremis or in cardiac arrest. Um, so bear hugger is essential. Warm IV fluids. Now, in our department, we use our blood warmers. Yeah. Okay, just like you do in the community. We don't have warmed fluids sitting in a, in a heater. Um, uh, and even if you did, it would only warm two or three And then uh, you units. abuse them and then you need more fluids. Exactly. Ages to warm them up. Our, our blood warmers only warm to about 37 degrees. The guidelines say 40 to 46 uh, or 44 uh, is the optimal temperature. Warmed inspired air is also the next thing. Yeah. Okay. How do you do that in the emergency department? So we haven't had to mm -hmm. um, that much. We have used warmed IV fluids. ICU they can heat their um, gases and ven ventilation. Down with us, uh, we can give humidified, but not, not necessarily heated. However, we do all have uh, heated, humidified, high flow. Um, yeah. High flow nasal oxygen. Yeah. High flow nasal oxygen. And I think that would be something that we should maybe think about in our response to hypothermic patients in, because most pediatric units will have that. Yeah, same in right. adults, yeah. So there is an option. Um, then we start moving on to other methods, more invasive yeah. techniques. So 
this is interesting. What do you choose? How do you choose them? And what are your options? So my thoughts are the least um, invasive. invasive, the better. Yeah. The difficulty is the least invasive are often the ones that don't work the best. Yeah. All right. So we've got gastric and bladder lavage. Yeah. That's putting a catheter, uh, an NG, NG tube down and you're passing warmed fluids down, leaving it there for a period of time, sucking it back out and then passing it down again. Um, there's very little evidence that that increases temperature much at all. Similarly, uh, bladder lavage, where you're passing a large catheter in and you're trying to pour fluid in and take it out again, doesn't necessarily increase your temperature much. And fittery to do, Tudor, as well, because you have to connect Absolutely. warmed fluid to a given set to a catheter and then get our to a syringe, get the fluid in, take it out again. It's yeah. Fit so these are things to consider. So the, the next steps are a bit more invasive peritoneal lavage where so, you're putting a PD catheter in yeah, with the surgeon. You so you need a surgeon yeah. and you need, need the connections. You need to know what kit they're going to bring down to do that with. Uh, and if you don't have the right kit, you're not going to be able to lavage it. I think for most of us uh, as pediatricians, we'd be happier with putting a chest strain in before we'd put a peritoneal lavage in. Now, the best evidence is for peritoneal, yeah. but up to date uh, would suggest that a left-sided um, chest strain this is foodery, so I've tried to do this in adults, and you have mm -hmm. to have thought it through really well before you try. So you've got one apical drain that you need connected to a fluid source, to a giving set, to a drain. So Seldinger's better than a trauma drain. And then a basal drain that uh, is connected to a chest drain with an underwater seal that's going to collect, connect your fluid. This is not easy to do. It's foodery. It's time-consuming. You have to have thought about your kit. Yeah. So the one thing to say about this is that these are the ones who are severely yeah. hypothermic. You're not going to progress to do this unless they're in, in, in no. the extremists um, and you're struggling. What I've seen in the literature is that most children start to respond to the basic measures and warmed fluids, warmed gases. Yeah, um, actually work. And they will start to increase the temperature. And if they're increasing their temperature, then there's no need to yeah. go down these lines. And some of these things are risky because you can precipitate VF, Absolutely. especially left side of the chest. Left-sided chest strain in, stimulate that heart, and you're into VF arrest. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is these are, these are decisions to be made with the team uh, when you are down the line of a child who's not warming. Yeah. And obviously to say all of these sort of invasive techniques are used in a center in which you can't just progress uh, to extracorporeal uh, warming or some form of filtration, hemofiltration. Now in our department um, we don't have um, ECMO, uh, we do have vena-vena uh, hemofiltration yep. uh, available but there's no protocol in place for that so that would have to be a discussion with the intensive care department. But I'm writing saying that it does work and it does actively rewarm and it's probably safer and easier to do than some of the other options. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's a consideration that you need to, to look at in each individual hospital. I think most ICUs will probably have some form of vena vena filtration, but very few are ECMO centers yeah. or bypass centers. Yeah. Um, so extracorporeal rewarming is uh, the gold standard, but I have no experience in it. I think none of us really do. We have very little experience um, in uh, extracorporeal life support. Um, so. Uh, for us, we consider referring a patient for extracorporeal life support uh, when they are profoundly unwell. And our choices are uh, do, uh, ECMO or cardiac bypass. So uh, in Belfast, for adults, cardiac bypass is a possibility. Um, uh, to, for uh, children, 
um, we don't have that option, but you are thinking about ECMO or bypass. So in these patients, if you're lucky enough to be close to an ECMO uh, or a cardiac bypass centre, you're thinking uh, for patients who have hemodynamic uh, instability, the patients who have uh, hypotension uh, with uh, a severely low systolic uh, blood pressure, so in an adult less than uh, 90, but the equivalent of a child. Um, <laughs> and uh, profound hypothermia less than 28 degrees, uh, hypothermic cardiac arrest, and cold water drowning in temperatures yeah. less than 6 degrees. So the ones that haven't asphyxiated? The ones that haven't asphyxiated and have drowned in cold water where there is a neuroprotective uh, element to the water. Okay. So as our time is running out, I think it is important to deal with the elephant in the room. Yeah. Okay. Um, our talk is titled Hypothermic Cardiac Arrest, and we haven't talked about it other than skirted around it. Um, I, I know we didn't want to focus on the management of cardiac arrest because we wanted to highlight the importance of management of hypothermia uh, in general. But I just want to go through the APLS algorithm yeah. and how it changes yeah, yeah. Uh, for cardiac arrest in, in cold children. So first of all, you're going to check for signs of shock, uh, signs of life for up to one minute because of the profound hypo um, uh, tension, the uh, bradycardia, and hyperventilation. N-tidal CO2 is not on the APLS guidelines, uh, but it is uh, useful to know whether there's cardiac output. And if there's a tracing for N-tidal CO2, that's a good understanding that there's some function there. Um, and ultrasound may be helpful as well in low flow states. Uh, if you're in doubt, you're going to start CPR. Intubate uh, the airway, protect that airway, in initiate continuous or mechanical CPR. Um, defibrillation attempts uh, you can use up to three times uh, under uh, 30 uh, degrees, and you don't want to keep on causing myocardial damage uh, if it's not working. So under 30 degrees, you're going to only give the three shocks. Similarly, you don't give drugs below 30. Yeah. And then between temperatures of 30 and 35, you double the space uh, or the timing of those drugs. So you go every eight minutes instead of every four minutes. So those are the key differences in shocking and in the drug use. So favorable outcome following cardiac arrest can be achieved despite prolonged resuscitation. Um, so survival is influenced uh, by a couple of different things. It's really important to try uh, and know what influences survival with good neurological outcome in children, but it's really difficult because there's not one single uh, parameter. Mm -hmm. um, so you do worse if you have uh, trauma, you do worse if you have asphyxiated. Um, but uh, the dictum that uh, no child is uh, dead until they're warm does not necessarily apply in certain situations. Mm -hmm. um, so these are the children where you can safely stop resuscitation or not start resuscitation because it's futile and this okay. is things like um, your body is frozen or your chest is incompressible there's an obvious lethal injury present um, or hypothermia is not your most likely cause of your cardiac arrest so there's another cause there's yeah. another cause going on or the, the child's only mildly hypothermic something else has caused that mm -hmm. arrest what is going on um, can also check your potassium um, there are no documented survivors with a potassium greater than 12. Um, and uh, then what is futility? You can safely pronounce life extinct um, if you have uh, actively rewarmed your child and you're still in isostole and the temperature's um, no longer uh, profoundly hypothermic. So you're up at uh, 32 degrees because you've got an unsurvivable uh, event. Um, what you don't want to miss is the child who is profoundly hypothermic who you can rewarm. Um, and um, 
I think one of the ones that we get um, confused about um, is the drowning and the immersions, um, immersion versus submersion. Um, so most of the drowning we see, these children are submerged, they have asphyxiated, and mm -hmm. most of the time they have been submerged in water that's not cold, uh, not warm enough, that is not cold enough to... So they, they, they cool after cardiac arrest? Yes, um, mm -hmm. they've, they have drowned and asphyxiated, and they're, they're not cold enough for it to be neuroprotective. Um, so water in the UK uh, generally sits around 12 degrees. It is possible in the UK, in Northern Ireland, in winter to uh, drown in water that is cold enough to be neuroprotective. It's more inland waterways. Um, it's during the winter and it's more likely in inland waterways and we're talking icy cold water yeah. here because the child has to cool quickly uh, to become profoundly hypothermic for it to be neuroprotective. Yeah. Um, so what we do is we measure water temperature and we look at immersion versus submersion. Um, so if you have been... Um, submerged in water that is warmer than six degrees uh, you can safely stop resuscitation in a child uh, after 60 minutes of resuscitation because it's futile. Um, if the child is immersed in cold water mm -hmm. um, below, 60, uh, below six degrees then you have that uh, near protection and you have the possibility of a survival benefit and you continue resuscitation uh, to hospital um, and uh, you consider uh, your extracorporeal life support and all of the things that we uh, talked about. Okay, Catherine. Well, um, that is a, a whole lot of hypothermia to go through. Um, what are your take-home messages? Okay, Tudor. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, three take-home messages um, and they are... Um, Remember to check your temperature early uh, in any patient who might be hypothermic and it might be contributing to their illness and injury. Mm -hmm. um, be aware of your principles of thermal regulation and temperature management and don't forget to do some things that prevent heat loss. Um, and these are rare events. These are things uh, that uh, we don't see all the time. So use, uh, this is information for time critical decision making um, in important events. Um, so knowing the guidelines and having aid memoirs helps you make the right decisions in a stressful situation. So you're telling everyone to go home and get back to their centers and make a guideline for how they're gonna manage it. So my take home messages, um, as we always say in pediatrics, don't ever forget glucose. Uh, physiological changes respond to rewarming uh, rather than conventional uh, treatments, so, such as bradycardia and hypertension. You want to rewarm those patients. And then remember, hypothermic patients uh, are hypovolemic, so plenty of fluids and monitor them closely. So I guess those are my take home messages, and those are your take home messages, and I think we're over time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.